My next story is, uh, this is a real head shaker. But let me set it up because he's a U.S. freelance photographer who was captured while shooting the uh, hellish reality that has been unfolding in Syria. But in 2012, Matthew Schreier was kidnapped by an Al-Qaeda affiliate while traveling between Aleppo and the Turkish border. And at that time, abducting journalists was useful in order to get things like ransom and propaganda. So Schreier would spend over seven months bouncing from a series of rebel-held prisons before making his escape, which meant months of torture and wondering if, in fact, he would ever get out alive. And he did. And he's the only Westerner to now tell about it. But he's written this book called The Dawn Prayer, How to Survive in a Secret Syrian Terrorist Prison. And it comes out today. And in it, he writes about a Canadian connection, about the jihadists who demanded his passwords, credit cards, and then spent thousands of his dollars. And now five years later, he, and soon you, will be wondering what on earth is the Canadian government, or more specifically, the RCMP, doing about it? Let's bring him into the conversation. He is, of course, a photographer, a survivor, as well as here to tell his story. He's now an author. Good to have you with us. Matt, let's talk a little bit about um, your experience because you were at the point in the most dangerous area of the world where journalists were a target. Why, why at that point did you want to take such risks? Well, journalists weren't a target at that point. Uh, well, they were, but it wasn't known because the FBI was encouraging American families like the Foley's and the Curtis's to stay quiet. And they did up until a certain point. So by doing research, by all appearances, it seemed, I'm not going to say safe, but kidnapping did not seem as rampant as it actually was. So at what point, and take us through, you're you're kidnapped. What happens? I'm kidnapped and brought to the Aleppo uh, pediatric hospital or the children's hospital of Aleppo, depending on who's translating it. And I'm held there for a month until some Canadians come in. And they basically are told to, by the higher ups, they're brought in due to the language barrier to shake me down from my social security number and the passwords to my bank accounts, credit cards, social media, YouTube, you name it. If it has a password, they wanted it, they got it. And within a few days, you started to see activity. If you were monitoring uh, my accounts like the FBI was, and in that time, they made hundreds, over 100 purchases, uh, everything from tablets to laptops to boots to cologne to a Kama Sutra guide. There you go. And, yeah, yeah, well, you know, got to learn it somehow. And uh, the they pretty much had free reign over my financial records until June 6th when Citibank made a business decision to freeze my business account because my personal savings had been drained into the red $553. So so let me, you're in captivity. You're an American Jew, nonetheless, kidnapped by those who essentially would be like Jews wiped off the, the planet. Uh, what is that like? Did you know uh, right away that you were in big, big trouble? Yeah. Yeah, I knew who had me because I threw out some questions. Like I asked for a cigarette. They said no. And, you know, the fanatics consider smoking a sin while the FSA smokes like chimneys. 
Uh, they didn't like profanity, and you know, a New Yorker, born and raised, I'm a potty mouth. Yeah. So they didn't like that. That was another sign. So within a couple of minutes, I knew who had me. But uh, you know, I had my story all worked out because it wasn't like I was telling people I was Jewish on the front lines. Uh, my last name sounds German, which is one of the things that made me realize it was possible for me to go over there and do the job undetected. And uh, you know, I just stuck to that script. You know. I'm, Christian and uh, my grandparents are of German descent, and they love that answer because you know the Muslims are big admirers of German history for obvious reasons. And uh, we just pretty much breezed over it, and that was the end of the conversation. They pretty much bought it. And so, at what point? I mean, you're in there. Uh, were you treated uh, well at the beginning, and then did it go downhill? How how was the what was the experience like? At first, it was uh, you know I'm not going to say pleasant. But tolerable. I mean, the guy who ran the prison, General Muhammad, I developed like a rapport with him during the interrogation because he was, uh, you know, kind of a a goofy guy mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when you broke it down. I mean, he was a thug and a murderer, but he had a great sense of humor. It's really, really, he's a really fascinating character in the book. And if he liked you, uh, you were good. And so by me making him laugh during the interrogation, he pretty much developed an affection for me. He named me Juma, which means Friday, which is a holiday. It's a very special day. So that, that was the name he gave me. And uh, he put the word out that nobody was allowed to touch me, um, guards and prisoners alike. When did that change? That changed after they caught me trying to escape on February 6th. And uh, that's when I got my feet whacked 115 times with a thick cable and tossed in a cold, dark room for almost 40 days till March 10th was barely fed, you know, constantly torn, you know, tormented with, uh, loud music blasting outside the door for hours on end. I was infested with bed bugs and, you know, the food was so scarce that, you know, we, excuse me, I went two and a half days without going to the bathroom once and, you know, wasn't even an issue. Look, I know New Yorkers are tough, but I have to think that it was a terrifying experience. I mean, you must have been wondering at what point will they kill you? That during that stage, yeah. I mean, during that's the Electrical Institute. That's the second chapter. You know, basically where they take us for punishment. And uh, so, yeah, during that stage, it was just like you know, God, would they just please just kill me already? <laughs> Get this over with because I couldn't take it anymore. But other than that, you know. It's, you're really just sitting in a room. I mean, you get used to the horrors, as, as cold as that may sound. You know, people getting tortured all day long, and you get used to it. And what about communication? Oh, uh, I mean, at what point do your family know that you're in trouble with the American government? At what point uh, are you able to communicate that uh, you need help? I never got the opportunity. And so your family essentially thought you were gone? I just disappeared. Just disappeared. Take us to that moment then when you get a second attempt. You figure out a second way that you're going to get out. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how you get the courage to do that a second time, but take us through that. Oh, I was trying to escape <laughs> within a few days of them torturing me. Right. But, uh, you, know, you know, just you got to wait for the right opportunity. It takes, you know, escaping is not something that works out the first time. It usually takes a bunch of different you know, strategies, tactics, until you you see one that works. And if anybody looks at the cover of my book, you'll see a a window with wires holding us in that were cemented into the foundation of the building. And without giving too much away, Mm -hmm. uh, they were welded on at one point. And you couldn't pull them off, you couldn't pry them off. But if you 
stared at it long enough and thought outside the box, I noticed that it was like a puzzle and that I could actually take it apart. And the, the way I realized that was I started thinking about characters in books or movies. And I remembered, as funny as it sounds, the Velociraptors from Jurassic Park and how the Australian guy said every time they jumped up at the electrified fence, they hit a different spot, so they were testing it for flaws. So that's what I started doing. And when I started testing each wire individually, I found the flaw, and I exploded it. And so once you get out, you obviously go straight to the border. Well, no, it's, it's not. You can't. It's not like I can just hitch a ride. I'm in a. Well, I was. I was curious about that. I'm like, so the guy knows to get back to the U.S., but how? how like, so how do you get? How do you well, get out uh, of the country? Again, I don't want to. Don't want to ruin too much. Right. Don't want to give too much away. But uh, you know, so yeah, I have no cell phone, no money, no passport, and speak virtually no Arabic. So by doing with those four challenges, uh, I have to get to this to the border, which is considerably far. So the goal is you got to get as far away from the base as possible where I was, where I escaped from. And two, I have to hook up with the free Syrian army without causing any suspicion to the people that I'm asking. So, uh, first couple of people didn't work out. Then I came across three guys and, uh, I did something that, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but I, I thought outside the box and instead of acting desperate and scared, I figured out a new act and basically tricked them into walking me right up to an FSA uh, headquarters. Fascinating. We'll pick up this conversation. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Matt Schreier, who is an American freelance photographer kidnapped in Syria. His new book is The Dawn Prayer, How to Survive in a Secret Syrian Terrorist Prison, which is now on sale. When we come back, Matt and I will discuss the Canadian connection and how this possibly connects to the Prime Minister. That part of this story next here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.